Welcome to Your Gal Friday, a podcast about female leaders, innovators, and rule breakers. Each week, your hosts, Kate and Phoebe, will shine a spotlight on an amazing gal and talk about what we can all learn from her. Brought to you by Gal's Guide to the Galaxy. Welcome to Your Gal Friday. I'm Kate Chaplin. And I'm Phoebe Freer. Her name has graced perfume, clothing, and handbags since the 1920s. She's freed women from the constraints of corsets and popularized a sporty and casual elegance. Because of her, most women have in their closet a little black dress. She's the only fashion designer listed on Time Magazine's list of 100 most influential people of the 20th century. This feisty gal created an empire and a brand that still exists today. You may know the brand, but today we're going to talk about your gal Coco Chanel. Coco Chanel is one of those names that I kind of thought everyone knew. You see that icon CC logo on handbags, perfume, clothing, labels, etc. I knew she was a fashion icon and it's not difficult to know about the famous perfume, specifically Chanel number no. 5. Even though perfumes give me a headache and stuff, I and I never wear it, I still definitely know about it. In fact, the perfume is so famous. Coco was one of the few famous names that I've Googled that the first link that pops up when you Google her name is a perfume and not her Wikipedia page. Very true. So I thought that was pretty amusing, personally. It's like, oh, I I want to know about the person. Right. Uh, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. So what I didn't realize was actually how very little I knew about her as a person. You see, the more I researched about her, the more shocked I felt. I I didn't realize all the assumptions I made until I really started to look into her character. I also didn't realize how much of my own fashion sense was based off of things she created. But more on that later. Absolutely. I mean, I... I really didn't know much about her before researching for the show either. I, I, I knew the Chanel brand. Um, in my fifth grade class, as most fifth graders still do, uh, I did a famous history project and I chose Marilyn Monroe. Uh, that is where I learned about Chanel number no. five. It's because Marilyn wore it. And I loved Marilyn, so I wore Chanel number no. five for quite some time. Um, but beyond paying the very expensive price for the perfume, I've actually never owned anything else Chanel. It actually kind of reminds me of how Project Runway, how the judges uh, will say to the designers, I know the girl you're designing for. Well, I was never really a Chanel type of girl. (laughs) Uh, I look terrible in pantsuits. I've always had wide hips and a bigger chest. So anything that is boxy just made me look even more boxy. Uh, And even with credit cards... I just didn't see the value for the Chanel price tag. But in learning more about her, I don't know if I would buy Chanel. But I can appreciate her work and what she's done. Uh, So now we have more options for how women can dress. I think it's very interesting. I've never bought anything Chanel myself either. Mm -hmm. But a lot of my own... um like style and taste is like whoa that that came from her right the things she influenced right like little black dresses yeah see you always have little black dresses yes i always have costume jewelry i adore big garish costume jewelry (laughs) (laughs) those are the things we adore yeah and even my uh great grandmother i didn't realize how much of her fashion sense was kind of based off of Chanel because she was into fashion jewelry. Ah. She was into hats and like heels with uh, or pumps with small with short heels. Oh, gotcha. And, and pantsuits and stuff. And she was into handbags too. And I was like, 
Well then, okay. I didn't realize that this was a a trend set by Coco Chanel, you know. Right, exactly. Oh, absolutely. Very cool. <laughs> so Coco Chanel was born in 1883 as Gabrielle Bonaire Chanel in a poorhouse in Samour, Maine at Loire, France. So her mother was single at the time, and her father was a peddling street vendor selling clothes, which it seems wasn't very profitable. After a time, her mom's family persuaded her parents to marry. Chanel grew up with four other siblings, all of which lived in a one-room residence in the town of Brive-la-Giarde. So when Chanel was 12, her mother died of bronchitis, and as a result, her father sent her brothers out to work and then sent her and her sisters to a Catholic foster home in the convent of Abuzane in central France. The thing is, Chanel actually was known to lie about her childhood. She would make up stories about being sent away to cruel family members or aunts, and she was known to not only glamorize the story, but also lie about her age by a whole decade. So when Chanel was in Abuzane, she learned how to sew, and I imagine the nuns taught her. It makes me wonder what kinds of things they had her sew, because she was so good at it that after six years, she was able to get a job as a seamstress. Yeah, no, that's very true. I wonder what she was sewing on when she was there, too. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And during the day, she would be a seamstress. And at night, she was a cabaret singer. What? She sang in between the star's performance while a collection plate went around the audience. It was at this time she actually started to be called Coco because she became known for singing songs containing the words Coco, like Coco Rico. She also seemed to have a serious go at her singing career, but she started to find getting work difficult and realized that her future was not in performing. But while singing at the Moulins Pavilion, she met a wealthy textile heir named Iteni, I'm guessing, uh, Balsan. She lived with him for three years and was introduced to the life of high society and self-indulgence. Her biographer, Justine Picardi, suggests in her book, Coco Chanel, The Legend and Life of Chanel, that Balsan had a child with her, and it was known to the public that it was her sister Julia's child. But Balsan was not the only man wanting her attention. Balsan's friend, Boy Capel, was also very smitten by her. Capel was also a wealthy man, but he was English. Coco was very much inspired by him. The overall aesthetic of Chanel brand to even the size and shape of the Chanel number no. five bottle might have even been modeled after the things that Capel liked and owned. Their relationship would last nine years. Now, he was betrothed and eventually married Lady Diana Wyndham. But he died in a car accident the year after the marriage. So many years after his death, Coco said, quote, I lost everything. What followed was not a life of happiness. So either Capel or Bassan or both <laughs> uh, set up Coco an apartment in Paris and financed her first shops. I found it so interesting that she cared so much about him, even though she never married in her life. She was very much smitten by him and who knows, he could have been very much smitten by her, but he circumstances. Right. He was betrothed right. to somebody else. He was right. he was wealthy and um you had to marry in your station. <laughs> so, from the moment she left Abizane, she was said to be working. Was she always feeling the pressure of being so poor? I mean, like you said she they have to marry in their own class, basically. Right. So I wonder if that had anything to do with it. I mean, I imagine she acquired good 
a good work ethic while she was young and working for the nuns. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe she hated the feeling of being poor and dreamt of high society a lot. I also thought maybe what drove her to be hardworking and successful was a combination of many different things. It's just, I think about these things because she was so successful. and yes. like and very driven. They're Right, and very driven. And they don't really talk about why she's driven. I feel like everybody has a reason why, and we never really got to we kind of have to speculate what her reasons are you know right and i don't think it was uh, i didn't get the sense of just climbing the social ladder um right so it was one of those things did she you know worry about how she grew up in a nunnery uh poor and abandoned and just always scared of being back there in some sense of the word so like kate said balsam was a wealthy textile heir I find this a bit too convenient that Chanel's career... A little bit. uh, A little bit too convenient. So our research doesn't talk a lot about how Coco Chanel got into the clothing-making business or why. Most sources go right into saying just about how one of her gentlemanly admirers helped her start her first shop. I'm just speculating here, but I can't help but wonder what made Chanel so passionate about starting her own shop and going for it with such a vengeance. I wonder what kinds of things Balson talked to her about and inspired her to do. I wonder what the depth of influence Capel had both artistically, mentally, emotionally. These men believed in her, and so she did the things she wished because they believed in her. Yeah, we all need somebody to believe in us, yeah. Exactly. So Chanel didn't start in clothing. She actually started in hats and became a licensed milliner in 1910. So she started getting popular when famous theater actress Gabrielle Dorsey wore one of her hats in a performance and also modeled Chanel's hats outside of the performances. In 1913, Chanel opened a full-fledged boutique where she introduced many of her clothing designs and quote-unquote new age fashions, so to speak. In the days of corsets and layered dresses, Chanel's designs were pretty daring. Her ideas were based on both fashion, design, elegance, and comfort. Chanel's expensive taste, but humble beginnings, led her to create her first fashions. Her clothing was made from fabrics such as jersey and tricot that was typically saved for men's undergarments, and she got a lot of backfire for this. It was not... Yeah. It was not something that you were to do she went totally against oh yeah you know what i actually tried to look at too i tried to figure out um you know the wealthy textile heir right did he own a lot of jersey and tricot and couldn't sell much of it i just wondered i could not find it out either way (laughs) i wish i thought to look at look that up but i'm but you didn't find anything (laughs) i i should have thought of that but yeah, that is very interesting. Like That's just kind of how my mind works. It's like when somebody thinks of something innovative of using a fabric that would be for underwear, right. wait a second. Where's the money? Right. Like what yeah, exactly. Where did Follow this come the from? Money. <laughs> or maybe it's like, I'm gonna help you, but this far you have to take it the rest of mm-hmm. the way. Like, or my father will only let me or let go of this type of fabric. So I don't know what you gotta exactly. do now. What are you going to do about it? I don't know, it? but well, either way, she's going to do about it. Either way, thank you because I love Jersey. Yeah. Jersey is 70% of my outfits. I, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it was just after the First World War that there were growing amounts of working women that petticoats and corsets just were not cutting it for them. They needed something that was more fluid and breathable, but still feminine and fashionable. At least that's what Coco Chanel thought. And at least that's what she thought for herself. Maybe, like, mm-hmm. I was also wondering. 
Did she think about everybody in her community? Or did she think, this is what I want, so maybe by chance other people will want it. Or maybe not. Maybe it's just what I want, you know? Yeah. Well, there was one thing that I saw that she was frustrated horseback riding. Yeah. You know, like, there's got to be a better way being corseted and being constrained and non-flexible fabric of just, like, this isn't fun to just go horseback riding where the guys are having a great time right. and they're comfortable in their clothes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it might've came from function for yeah. following function. Maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> so because of Coco's line of thinking flowed well with other women of her time, her fashion did fairly well despite being against the norm. So Chanel designed something that nearly all women in our culture now have known as the little black dress. Oh, totally. I got one. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I do, too. (laughs) When I was a young adult and starting my own film career, my mom told me all about all the things every woman needs in her closet. This included a nice set of heels, always first on mom's list. She'd be sad if I didn't mention that. But she, mom has, (laughs) like, you know, three-inch heels as opposed to Coco where it's, like, an inch or half an inch heel. So that's slightly different. I have... I have the shorter heels as well. I have 10 minute shoes. That's about it. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. <laughs> if they're bigger than that, they're 10 minutes. And it's like, I'm pretty. Take the picture. They're coming off. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> what was on my mom's list and Coco Chanel's list is a nice jacket or pantsuit and a pretty but functional purse and a little black dress. So unbeknownst to me, all of these, with the exception of the heels, were designs that Coco Chanel had made popular. All of these, might I add, I do have it on my own closet at this point. Yep. Oh, yeah. It's in mine, too. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a staple now, and it's pretty cool. Exactly. I was talking to my daughters, and they're like, you have a little black dress? And they're like, wait a minute. You have three. I do. I have a long sleeve little black dress for wintertime. Nice. Mm-hmm. I have a summer strapless, strappy little black dress. Nice. Um, and then I have a long black dress that I can wear so I can layer it for fall. So I have all season little black dresses. (laughs) I wish I had that many. I have one, I think. Yeah. But it's you got to find them after a while. Some of mine are old. Like Mm -hmm. I've had them for years and I just won't get rid of them because they work. Right. When a little black dress works, you keep that thing until it's dead. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. So in 1910, Chanel opened a boutique at 21 Rue Caban where she practiced her millinery and created and sold many now iconic fashions. The sailor blouse, a.k.a. the Breton shirt, is classic Chanel, which was designed off of shirts typically worn by sailors or fishermen. The Chanel shirt is still widely worn today. I did see a picture of the princess in England uh, wearing one of these shirts, too. Oh, look at that. So the Chanel shirt is still widely worn today. Other noticeable Chanel couture is, of course, her many hats, jackets, sweaters, and more casual clothes for the working woman. The chemical formula for Chanel No. 5 was compounded by French-Russian chemist and perfumer Ernest Bue. In 1920, when presented with a small glass vials containing sample scent compositions numbered 1 to 5 and 20 to 24 for her assessment, Coco Chanel chose the fifth vial. Hence, the number 5. Dun-dun-dun! So, the design for the square-shaped glass bottle was by Coco herself. And there are many speculations on where the inspiration came from. Most people think she got the inspiration from Capel and the things he used on a regular basis one way or another, like the whiskey canter or the whiskey flask. Mm -hmm. 
The original bottle had very thin glass and was for select customers, but it proved difficult to ship because of the fragility of it. So later on, they strengthened the glass at the corners, which now you can see the classic bottle shape of today. Totally. In 1924, Coco Chanel made an agreement with the Werthemers, creating a corporate entity, Parfums Chanel. Chanel believed that the time was opportune to extend the sale of her fragrance, Chanel No. 5, to a wider customer base. Since its introduction, it had been available only as an exclusive offering to an elite clientele in her boutique. In 1929, Chanel came out with a leather handbag with a strap so that she could be hands-free, implying that she could be active in society just like men and could be hands-free around doing so. I think that's a pretty cool concept because I do not carry purses unless I'm hands-free. That is just yeah, how I absolutely. roll. Yeah, absolutely. All of my purses have a strap. Yep. And mine always need to have a strap long enough to go cross-body because then I can really be hands-free. Yep, mm-hmm. me too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, in my opinion, Chanel had this lust for wealth. She enjoyed both having it, having things, and then showing it off. But to display expensive jewelry at the time, it all comes at this risk of someone stealing it. So, she again collaborated with another designer and created costume jewelry that was acceptable to wear in public. Mostly because she made it acceptable. That's right. If Coco says it, mm, it happens. Right, if Coco (laughs) says it's acceptable, then it's acceptable. You better believe it. (laughs) The more jewelry that you have, the more people you can impress. And that was the whole idea of the costume jewelry. And then having many strands of pearls. And Chanel was known to impress many people with her many, many, many strands of pearls and other jewelry. Yeah, absolutely. Now, here's one of the many things that actually kind of became difficult in researching. Because mm-hmm. I can't personally say <laughs> how much it was Chanel that changed the way women dressed. Because the overall theory is if something is repeated over and over, over the course of now 100 years at this point, no matter whether or not it's true or even a kernel of it is true, it becomes the public perception. Right. Also... The House of Chanel is very powerful, (laughs) and they are connected from high society trendsetters all the way to the middle class that strives to have a piece of Chanel, the piece of the elite. So it is important for the Chanel brand to control whatever is said by Coco and to cement her place on how she changed the world of fashion Because they still have things to sell. But here's what I do know. I know that the Chanel brand made new ideas to clothing and accessories, and they made them acceptable. She made it acceptable for women to get out of corsets and popularize the sporty and casual elegance. Now, the Roaring Twenties totally helped. Women's suffrage totally helped. Uh, Also, the stock market crash of 1929 helped because there was less items now for women to own and to purchase therefore the chanel clothing line was much more you know applicable and doable now nearly all women like we were talking about have that little black dress in their closet right so but at the time the only way it was acceptable to wear black was when a woman was in mourning and chanel actually made it accessible to wear black anytime thank you very much (laughs) 
Yeah, thank you for real, because black is one of my favorites. <laughs> it is slimming. It is every season. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is timeless and it is gorgeous. Uh, it also hides stains. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is that key. also helps as well. That helps. <laughs> <laughs> it is functional fabric. Heck yeah. But getting women also in suits, it was really the first professional outfit option that women had. It implied a working woman. Right. And so after World War One, when women returned home from working in factories, many wanted to continue that independent lifestyle. And that suit almost became a uniform for success and independence. And even the, uh, you know, you talked about the the purses. There was the idea of the satchel, uh, the cross body bag, that those were out there to be hands-free. But Chanel, when she did the 255 bag... I also loved it because I looked up why it was called the 255. It was created in February of 1955. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hence why it's called the 255. I still love that. Yeah, I thought that was like a little less uh, ingenuity. I don't know. I was like, oh, that was kind of... Exactly. It was almost a cop-out, but at the same time, because you don't know what 255 is until there's Google. Right. (laughs) Then it's like, oh, that must be really fancy. I mean, like cars had numbers at the time. Right. (laughs) So it's like, oh, it's elusive. It's a mystery. What is it? Mm -hmm. No, it's February 1955. Right. I mean, it does go along with Chanel number five being the fifth vial. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's, um, you know, it's a uh, continuity. Yeah. Let's just yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> continuity. We'll just call it. Yeah. But it is Coco's venture in a costume jewelry. I just find really interesting um, because I think it says a lot about Coco, but it also says a lot about the woman that Coco wanted to dress. If you if you look at some of the early photos of Coco, in fact, probably the one we are using for this episode, it's the one where she is draped in multiple strings of pearls. And they were costume jewelry. They were fake pearls. But they exude elegance and wealth and sophistication. Wealthy ladies who didn't want to wear everything and get them stolen could now wear more of them and impress more people. So again, Coco made it acceptable to wear fake jewelry and yet still keep its classiness. And I loved that. That's pretty (laughs) awesome, actually. I never would have thought that that's where costume jewelry came from. I always just assumed that somebody was like, hey, there's a theater performance and I'm now I'm going and there's this jewelry for theater and now I'm just going to wear it every day and it just caught on or something. Like that's how I yep, kind of exactly. assumed in my head costume jewelry, you know. That that's how that happened. Yeah, true. I always went with, you can't afford the real thing, so here's the fake thing. Kind of like, you know, whatever the knockoff Chanel bag is on the corner. Right, exactly. (laughs) You can't afford the real. So I I just figured that too. But I always, yeah, I did wonder why they call it costume jewelry. And I thought, well, maybe it's just the the fake movie, the fake theater. Right. You know what I mean? It's supposed to look real. Right. (laughs) But it's all just an illusion of costume. In 1926, the American edition of Vogue published an image of a Chanel little black dress with long sleeves. Vogue predicted that such a simple yet chic design would become a vital uniform for women of taste. The look shocked the public for sure, especially the men who complained that they didn't see the accentuated feminine forms anymore and considered it looking boyish. Despite the fact that it became widely popular, which can be attributed in part to the timing of its introduction, the 1930s was a period of the Great Depression era, 
when women needed affordable fashion. Chanel boasted that she had enabled the non-wealthy to walk around like millionaires. Chanel started making little black dresses in wool, chenille, and for the day, and satin and crepe and velvet for the evening. Turns out she was right. Many women I know, including myself and Kate, like we just said, consider the little black dress to be a staple in their wardrobe. And it can be used for so many different occasions. The other reason this was so daring is because black was traditionally reserved for morning clothes, exactly like Kate said. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, now it's socially acceptable because you can dress it up, you can dress it down, you can go out, you can be in whatever social function and look. Add color to it if exactly. you want to. Add jewelry yep. to it. It's a perfect foundation for any kind of expression. Exactly. So what is interesting to me is that Coco not only designed for herself in the public, but she designed for stage and film as well. After trying and failing as a theater actress and singer, Chanel worked for the Ballet Russe between the years 1923 to 1937. She'd collaborated on productions and designed costumes for three notable stage performances and was successful and actually well-liked. Additionally, Chanel was contracted to design for Hollywood actors every two years with MGM. Um, This was around roughly the same time period. Her first film debuted in 1931, called Tonight or Never, featuring her designs for Gloria Swanson. It turns out, though, that she only continued the work because she was under the contract. She ended up disliking the entire movie business, and the people in the industry complained that her dresses weren't sensational enough. She made a lady look like a lady. Hollywood wants a lady to look like two ladies. And their personalities did not combine. They completely clashed. They ended up hating each other. They're like, good riddance, Hollywood. I'm out. That was super surprising to me. (laughs) It was not a mutually beneficial relationship at all. Oh, Oh, my gosh. That's so surprising (laughs) to me because I feel like even when you look up the little black dress and Coco Chanel and stuff, you see Audrey Hepburn wearing a little black dress and, like, all the jewels and stuff. Yeah, breakfast at Tiffany's. It Mm -hmm. never occurred to me that, hey, these two things would totally clash. I didn't even, I, I wouldn't have predicted that at all. But it's very interesting. Right. It's a different kind of mindset designing for the runway versus designing for right. uh, for a film. But it does work the opposite way around of a costumer for film looking at what's on the runway or vintage right. and using that. So it works yeah. backwards, but it doesn't yeah. always work forward. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, But we do have some dark Mm -hmm. times of Coco Chanel, unfortunately. Uh, Her dark times were from 1936 to 1954. So during the last four years of the 30s, hot couture was actually threatened. The flapper look was gone. Her Hollywood connection just did not work out. (laughs) And she was starting to be outshined by other designers. There was also this little thing called World War II. Yeah, just this little thing. So she closed her shop saying this is not a time for fashion. Now, throughout the German occupation of France, Coco stayed at the Hotel Ritz, which was also the home of the upper echelon of the German military staff, including one Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage. But he was of German military intelligence. Now, this is where her story gets a little complicated. Some claim that documents identify Coco as a Nazi spy. The House of Chanel refutes this claim. Mm -hmm. We have been digging into it, and there is a lot of interpretation of documents, of gossip, and of speculation. What we do know... (laughs) 
is that the French prefect de police had on file and labeled her an agent reference number. And so she was signaled as a suspect in the file. Now, a biographer, Hal Vaughn, wrote that the document linked Coco to German intelligence operations. But then there's other anti-Nazi activists like Serge Klarsfeld that points out not everyone who had a spy number was actually a spy. So in terms of U.S. history, think how Herbert Hoover kept documents on Charlie Chaplin and John Lennon, for example, where Hoover was always trying to get them out of the country. But now Coco was interrogated by the Free French Purge Committee in 1944. So with this one, think House on Un-American Activities Committee, kind of the same thing. Uh, Coco was released Because there was no documented evidence showing her involvement as a Nazi spy. She was again requested to appear in Paris for the war crime trial of Baron Louis de Vaufenland, another awesome name, in 1949. She denied all accusations of being a spy. Now... Coco did have powerful friends. We're talking Winston Churchill, Edward Prince of Wales, the Duke of Westminster, Dinklage of Germany, the Grand Duke Dmitry Pachalov of Russia. I mean, one could say that she had friends on every side of the war and of power. What they all did have in common is they were extremely wealthy and they were all very protected of Coco. Mm-hmm. So we may only ever have speculation and gossip on the spy thing. It was a very difficult one for us to research. But if that wasn't enough, (laughs) there was another one that threw us quite a bit of a curve and in these dark times of her life with her shop clothes. So now during the war, Nazis would seize Jewish-owned property and business. So in 1924, before the war, before these dark times, Coco had an agreement with the Wertheram brothers who were Jewish. The brothers financed the production and they handled the marketing and distribution of Chanel number no. five. They got 70% of the profits for their work. Coco got 10% of the stock holdings in the company as she was licensing her name. Thinking the perfumes of Chanel were abandoned because they were Jewish property and seizures with German occupation of France, she wrote to Nazi party officials requesting proprietary ownership of the perfume. What she didn't know was that in 1940, in anticipation of the Nazis' mandates, the Werthmer brothers legally turned over the business to a Christian French businessman who then returned ownership back to the brothers. So all of this was dealt with with contracts, and they were actually renegotiated in 1947. Coco got wartime profits. She then got 2% of profits of Chanel Number no. 5 worldwide. And she also got the brothers to agree to pay for all of her living expenses for the rest of her life. And this made her one of the richest women in the world. And this did not sit well with many people in France. This could be, could be one of the reasons why she was labeled as a spy or a Nazi sympathizer. Then again, I don't know. She still kind of could have been. This one threw me a curveball because I really didn't expect to read about this when researching Coco Chanel. I thought this week would be nice and light and like 
oh, we're talking mm-hmm. about fashion and design and, you know, and we are talking about that, of course. Yeah, but I yeah. didn't. Th- this was like a heavy one. Uh, I didn't expect it for some. For yeah, like, I was totally blindsided yeah. by it, too. I was, I was like, like, oh, wait, shoot. What? Okay. <laughs> That's a thing. Okay. And the more I researched it, the more I felt uneasy because I realized I had all these preconceived ideas about who she was and who and then I realized right I have all these preconceived ideas about celebrities in general or famous people or companies or you know all these things that's like I just assume that they're good people or I just assume that they're on one side or another or whatever. Right. I didn't realize how much I assumed in my own mind until I read about this. I'm not saying one way or another because I can't. I mean, I can't say right, she was exactly. one way or another. But it's disheartening to, to read it. I read about her wanting the her perfume company back from the brothers because, oh, they're Jews. Right. I can exploit them. I was so sad right. after reading that. Like, did she do that because she it was an opportunity to gain more money? Did she do it because they were Jews? How right. could that be? Exactly. You know, like, did she do it because possible? she thought that the company was abandoned and... You know, right. hey, wait, I own this. Was right. it a power grab? I mean, right. like, there were so we... many different things that it could have been. Yeah. And it may, it makes me wonder what was really in her heart. What are, what are we not seeing that was in her, probably in her own head? She probably, I can't imagine anybody really knows but her, you know, what was actually going on and why she had these power struggles. After reading this, I feel like she's a much more complex person than I initially thought and oh, yeah. I, I feel bad almost about myself because I didn't assume that she was complex. And then I was like, oh, wow, she is very, I can't <laughs> figure this out. I just, she is I don't a know. Big ball of wax. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the danger of being an icon. Right. Once you're an icon, you're almost above being a real person. Right. Um, you become a caricature. And right. if you are in that iconic phase, as long as Chanel was, you almost become that after right. a while. You become like the icon her, that everybody says you are. Yeah. Like we think of her as the CC instead of a person, you know, or think of her as yeah. this is she's high fashion all the time instead of she wanted fashion to also be functional and she also had all these other ideas. Her bows or her the people that she associated with were all people of power. Yeah. She had ideas. The more I read about her, the more I just yes. know. She had a plan. She had a goal. She knew what she wanted. I was like, I don't know what she wanted. What did she, like, did she get what she won? Well, and it almost goes back to, um, I just thought how you talked about when you Googled her, the first thing that came up right. was one of, was her bottle, right. was an object. Is it one of those things where that's we don't see Coco as a right. real full-fledged human being with complexities? Right. We see her as a product. Uh, and that's unfortunate. And that's why I'm so glad we do this show. So we can actually kind of... Yeah, me too. <laughs> we can dig into the gal, warts and all, because none of us are perfect. <laughs> right. We're all trying to figure this out. Uh, and it threw us kind of for a loop. <laughs> Definitely. So, but I mean, on the, the accusations of her being anti-Semitic, it was really, like I said, we was totally uncomfortable in our research. And we just really, we want to be fair. We don't want to unjustly paint a woman's character as perfect or... Or as deplorable. We we want to bring you what we have found and more importantly, what we can learn from each of the gals that we cover. Absolutely. So in trying to separate this glorious gossip from provable facts, right. <laughs> the one thing that I've learned is, like I said before, always follow the money. Right. <laughs> in 1954, 
five years after the renegotiation over Chanel number five, she had a fashion comeback. And that comeback was fully financed by the brothers, by the Werthmer brothers. This to me is a big fly in the ointment of her being truly labeled and being truly an anti-Semite. Because why would the brothers let her have a comeback if she truly hated Jewish people? Right. They would let her vanish into uh, just obscurity. They would just bye bye. Right. <laughs> You're exactly. Gone. Like no, we're not. <laughs> we're not acknowledging that you existed because you basically disowned everybody who's like us so i don't think so exactly yes like this goes completely against that thinking that that's the big fly in the ointment for me as well yeah i mean i i think it's very probable uh mm-hmm. that she did keep friends on both sides of the war because honestly yeah. when it comes to world war ii if you were in europe and you were in occupied France for crying out loud. You didn't know which way it was going to turn out. Right. You didn't know who was going to win. Um, you didn't know what connections you were going to need to survive. So she might have had different views and said different things depending on who she was right. talking with. My proof here is in, in studying her, she actually funded uh, newspapers that were left wing and right wing depending on how the tide and the climate was shifting with the people and with the influence in her friends. So which side was she on? I think she was always on the side of financial independence and status. Basically, whatever kept her independent, whatever kept her getting money. Do I think that's noble? No. Do I see it as some kind of survival tactic? Possibly. Yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking, I was wondering, um, since she grew up in the nunnery, So she grew up then, like, she was, I can imagine, you know, she was probably always in survival mode. Like, she was always poor. Totally. She was was cast out on her own. She was more than likely in survival mode most of her childhood. Her her parents were not, were only together because they, they had to be, basically. She was just, she had a tough childhood and it makes me wonder if she never really grew out of that maybe she was like her whole life is i'm in survival mode this is how i'm doing it i'm just going i'm here and i'm gonna live as long as i can and i'm gonna put my stamp on the world and i'm gonna survive i'm gonna make it Mm -hmm. so i feel like that's almost a theme there's one interview that i saw that was completely in french Mm -hmm. and i did not even trust the subtitles right yeah (laughs) Like the subtitles didn't seem to work. But what I could see in her body language just in that interview Mm -hmm. was somebody fighting for survival, Mm -hmm. was just clawing her way into, you know, what I do is important. uh, What Chanel is, is important. uh, You will listen to me and, you know, I, you know, and I will survive sort of thing. This was when she was in her 70s. Yeah, Yeah. that I saw that interview. Um, So, yeah, I think you're totally, uh, totally on par there. Yeah. Yeah. So until 1971, Coco worked on her collections and her brand. So now, 87 years old, she was preparing for the spring catalog and she went to bed early and she died at the Hotel Ritz. Mm -hmm. Her funeral was in Paris. The first seats were taken up by her models. Her coffin was covered in various white flowers with a sprinkling of red roses and she is buried in Switzerland. So I found her legacy or what she wanted to leave behind was tenacity and determination Mm -hmm. to be a rags to riches story. I mean, her products represented that woman. She created a bridge, which I love. 
whether you were a duchess or a movie star, a working mom, you could all embody that powerful, confident, and elegant woman. Uh, she gave women a chance to feel accepted in their own bodies, in the shape that their bodies were in, not a constrained or a confined or contorted version of their body, mm-hmm. but free to live a life without boundaries and without limitations. And she gave working women a uniform. But it was actually up to us to really do the work. Absolutely. What did you think her legacy was? I think of her and I think of this complex woman in her own mind. I, I'm I'm kind of torn because on one hand, I feel like she wanted to leave a legacy behind for others. But on the other hand, I feel like almost she wanted to leave a legacy behind for her own sake. Like she, she was kind of in yes. it. She was kind of in this for herself. This whole life thing, she was in it for herself kind of thing. And the fact that it did help mm-hmm. others, I feel like was kind of a, just an added bonus kind of thing. I could be totally wrong, mind you. Right, right. I could be, I could be completely reading this wrong, but that's kind of like the impression I'm getting after researching this. Yeah, I think it's fair. I think that uh, part of her legacy is she wanted to be remembered and she wanted to be known as powerful and full of strengths that she made it she maybe she didn't start off the way she wanted to and maybe she never was who people thought she should be or was who society thought she should be but she was herself and she was determined to be herself and I think that her legacy is she wanted to be herself and I feel like she almost wanted to be accepted by society eventually and she's like, I'm going to be, by, yes. but I'm, but she's going to be herself regardless. And I think that she just wanted to leave a mark and say, here, this is who I am. Here I am. I'm going to make a stamp. And I was strong when I did it. Absolutely. I think it's one of those things where she wanted to be high society rich. Right. And she was not born into money, but she earned her money. Um, it actually reminds me, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Have you ever seen that one? Oh, shoot. No. There's a line in that where, um, Jim Williams said, I am nouveau riche, Mm -hmm. the new rich, meaning earning the money yourself. Mm -hmm. He says, it's the riche that matters. (laughs) 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 So even though she wasn't born into money, she earned her money and that, you know, uh, gave her her status to, uh. To hang in there with the wealthy. Yep, exactly. <laughs> I mean, what I learned from her, the, the variations of truth are always far more complex uh, than a brand or an icon. Mm-hmm. And I did. I came into this research thinking that I knew a great deal about Coco. But I found myself completely dizzy by the complexity of this incredibly interesting gal. She's been on my mind. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> for a lot. Yeah. <laughs> we researched during the day and at night I am still thinking about Coco. Right. Like, Coco, what were you doing? Right. What is going what on? Or thinking? how did you do that? She's just, she's in this? my brain uh, yeah. consistently. And, and I, and I adore it actually. I really yeah. do. Yeah. I mean, I think an icon is designed to be simple and memorable. So Coco Chanel freed women from the corsets and created a new silhouette. Mm -hmm. That is what the history books will say, because that is simple and that is memorable. But I learned that to create uh, a widespread change, you need a couple of things. You need the time to be right. right. You need other people to have laid the groundwork for you. 
and you need powerful friends who will vouch for you and then assimilate to your cause. Yep, exactly. (laughs) That is kind of the recipe for success. Yep, and she found it. She really did. I who knows? She might have even uh, trademarked that. Like yeah. that's what you do. Yeah. Yeah. That's the blueprint. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so during this research, I feel like Coco was almost daring me mm-hmm. to find out the truth of who she was, yeah. uh, because at times I really did feel like it was nearly impossible yeah, to definitely. figure out the truth of this woman. But I think I did at least for me. I think she was scared. I think she was scared to be abandoned again. She was scared to be poor. She was scared to trust and she was scared to love. I think her fear, she only could push it aside when she was working. I also think those quiet nights in the hotel Ritz, it probably all was still there. That fear was still there. So the only thing that would really free her of it is going to work the next day and creating something new and being around people once again. So what do you think we can learn from Coco? I think we can uh, take away her determination for life. She was really determined to push ahead. And like you said, she was probably, she probably battled every day in her own mind. This is what I'm scared about, but this is what I'm going to do to to counter it. You know, and we can all take something. We can mm-hmm. all take that away with us because that's that's everybody. It doesn't matter what your aspirations in life are. Like you can... You can hold that to yourself and be like, okay, I'm going to survive. And, but she more than survived. She succeeded and she left a mark. I think it's really cool that regardless of why she made the mark or regardless of why she kept moving, she did. And we can move forward and leave a mark just like she did. So, well, that wraps it up for us. We're probably still going to be thinking about Coco Chanel far after this episode, which we hope you will as well. But thank you for listening to Your Gal Friday. You can find out more about Coco Chanel and the upcoming gals that we're going to be covering at galsguide.org. If you like the show and find value in the gals that we cover, please subscribe, share, and visit our Patreon page. Links to everything are at galsguide.org. Look for the podcast tab. We will leave you with... With this quote from Coco Chanel, look for the woman in the dress. If there is no woman, there is no dress. For more information about this week's gal or to check out our previous episodes, visit galsguide.org. To support the show, visit the Gals Guide Patreon page. We've got great perks like behind the scenes, early access, and private live streams. Thank you so much for subscribing to Your Gal Friday.